you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. the Moan Broadcast Center. This is Take Two. I'm Martinez. Gavin Newsom has been dropping budget crumbs all week. Well, today it becomes one big loaf of budget bread sent to the legislature. We'll break it all down. Plus, California Congressman Kevin McCarthy says no one is questioning the legitimacy of the election, yet he pushed out Liz Cheney for pushing back on stolen election claims. We'll dive into what his possible endgame is ahead on Take Two. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. Me, Martinez, thanks for doing Friday with us. Now, for today's State of Affairs, we've got Gavin Newsom's revised state budgets coming up a little bit later in the show. But first, we're going to go back a bit in the life of California Congressman Kevin McCarthy. We'll start November 5th and weave through January 2nd, a two-month stretch where it sounded like McCarthy had trouble accepting the fact that Donald Trump lost the election. And President Trump won this election, so everyone who's listening, do not be quiet. He's not president right now. Don't know if he'll be president January 20th, but whoever is, we'll get the information. The president, he has to make sure that every legal vote is counted, every recount is done, and make sure every um, complaint or being able to heard inside court. Once that's done, I think the election will be over and the electors will make their decision. If you want to unite this nation, you've got to start with having integrity in your elections. There are questions out here. What would be wrong with an audit? What would be wrong with bringing the information back so people have all the information to make those decisions? Then, seven days after the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, McCarthy actually called Trump out. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. Only to flip-flop seven days after that. I don't believe he provoked if you listen to what he said at the rally. Now, keep in mind, the whole time, Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney would publicly not buy into Trump's false claims of election fraud and called Trump out for inciting the insurrection. Because of all this, McCarthy engineered Cheney's removal as House GOP conference chair. Wednesday, after the deed was done, McCarthy might have thought everyone had forgotten about the past six months. 
But I don't think anybody is questioning the legitimacy of the presidential election. I think that is all over with. We're sitting here with the president today. Um, so from that point of view, I don't think that's a problem. Now, to be clear, Liz Cheney is still a member of the House. She's just not the third-ranking GOP member, thanks to Kevin McCarthy. I think that he is not leading with principle right now. And I think that it is, it's sad, and I think it's dangerous. And I think that we are at a moment where the Republican Party has to have leaders that are focused on principle. Here to untangle all of this are Carla Marinucci, Politico's California Playbook senior writer. Welcome back, Carla. Good to be with you. Also with us, uh, Jack Pitney, Claremont McKenna College professor, also author of Un-American, The Fake Patriotism of Donald J. Trump. Jack, welcome back. Good afternoon. All right, before we get into motivation, let's break down the execution of Kevin McCarthy's power play on Liz Cheney. How efficient or messy, Jack, do you think it was? Well, it's kind of like the Iraq War. First efficient and then messy. Uh <laughs> The, uh, you know, the, the, the Iraq war, the invasion, bing, 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 we were in Baghdad, but then the insurgency was the hard part. In this affair, uh, uh, he got rid of her very quickly, but now he ha- finds that he has raised her stature in the public way above what it would have been before. She'll keep talking about the insurrection. She'll keep getting attention and Republicans will keep responding. And this is not what they want to be talking about. Uh, So overall, it is a very messy situation. Yeah. And Carla, I think that's something that uh, maybe he thought might not happen. But as, as Jack said, yeah, it certainly did. So there is a messiness to it for the GOP. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the question is, I mean, how many times can Kevin McCarthy sort of turn himself into a pretzel on this one in terms of trying to cover all the bases. And it does create problems for other Republicans. A, just look at the Republicans who are trying to run for governor right now in California. I tried contacting them, all of them this morning, to ask them how they felt about Kevin McCarthy's actions and Liz Cheney being dumped. Every one of them said, um, we can't comment on that or we're focused on California right now. Um, They are running away from uh, what happened because in California, this is a real problem for them, but in other parts of the country, too. So it is going to be played out. But the fact is uh, what McCarthy did this week uh, is going to resonate for quite a bit in the Republican Party. All right. Now to motivation to become Speaker of the House. McCarthy needs uh, probably two things to happen before the midterms in 2022. The GOP uh, flips the House and Donald Trump uh, has to give his blessing. If we can agree on McCarthy's motivation, Carla, how intertwined are those two things to get him where he wants to be? Well, you know, McCarthy has shown a drive to be speaker for a very long time. I mean, let's remember, he was the front runner to take the speaker's gavel back in 2015 from John Boehner. At that point, you know, he dropped out and he showcased some of the past political weaknesses, the uncertainties. You know, remember, he was the one who commented that Republicans were only investigating Benghazi to stick it to Hillary Clinton. Uh, At the time, a lot of Republicans had some doubts about where he was on the political spectrum. And there was another factor, uh, the, the widespread r- rumors about him having an affair up on Capitol Hill. These, these were things that, that we, you know, we should remember. McCarthy has had political problems in the past. And right now, McCarthy seems to have put those to the side. Uh, I think the big question for him now is, is the party a big tent or is it going to be perceived as a circus tent, depending on some of the more outspoken um, members of his of his caucus. Uh, that That is his issue. He has stuck with some of them and they are going to continue to make noise. 
against Liz Cheney and against the more moderate factions in the party. And McCarthy is going to have to wrangle them in. And that that's going to be something to watch. And Jack McCarthy has made the pilgrimage to Mar-a-Lago. Uh, and we all saw the photo. Maybe there's been a couple of photos like, now that I think about it uh, since uh, since the election. How how intertwined is, is that? Uh, the, the GOP flipping the House and Donald Trump uh, at last thing giving his blessing that McCarthy could take the could be the speaker. Well, from McCarthy's perspective, the two things are very closely aligned. He figures he absolutely has to have Trump support. But there's a problem. Uh, Carla mentioned uh, McCarthy's checkered past. Trump is very much aware of it. And uh, there is already speculation that despite all McCarthy's done for him, he might still want to anoint somebody as uh, somebody else's speaker wow. if the Republicans take control. I mean, it's really not wise to bet your life on Trump's loyalty. Just ask his ex-wives. <laughs> no, that is uh, that is true. That is actually on the record true. Uh, Carla, the Democratic Party has been accused of having two distinct wings, progressives and centrists. Does the House GOP get points here, though, for showing solidarity? Well, you know, in some respects, yeah, I mean, right now they seem to be in lockstep. I mean, most of the California Republicans uh, wouldn't say how they voted. Uh, we have uh, Tom McClintock at one point. And young Kim, by the way, just came out and uh, on Twitter in support of uh, Elise Stefanik, uh, saying that she's brought the party together. And I look forward to working with her. The problem is when it comes to solidarity particularly in California, many of these Republicans have a problem. They've got to appeal to both sides of the aisle. Take Mike Garcia, who's down there in the 25th district in Northern LA County. You know, he won his seat by a, a mere 333 votes. Uh, and then, but over the last week, he went hard MAGA showing up at the at a Freedom Fest sponsored by Devin Nunes. These are the kinds of things these Republicans here in California, they're gonna be having to walk a tightrope uh, between President Trump and uh, appealing across the aisle. And when you talk about solidarity, yeah, they, they want solidarity with the party. But the, on the other hand, if they want political survival in California, particularly people like Michelle Steele, David Valadeo, they're going to have to decide how they navigate this. This is not going to be an easy thing. Yeah, Jack, not all Republicans are happy about the state of things. New York Times reported this week that more than 100 are threatening to leave the party, including uh, former elected officials. Uh, Jack, what was said and what does it tell you about what's happening to the party, regardless of how the House uh, wound up voting on Liz Cheney? Well, the key words are former elected officials. Uh, people like Tom Ridge are very unhappy with the direction of the party, have been for some time. Uh, a lot of these folks really aren't news when it comes to dissatisfaction with Trump. Uh, there's been some speculation that they might want to try to start a third party. Well, that's very difficult. One, uh, there really isn't among the Republican base a whole lot of uh, sentiment for that. Uh, Trump has the support of Republican voters. Uh, this is really among uh, people who've been active in politics, former party people, for, uh, former staffers and the rest. Uh, the uh, talk of third party isn't going to go very far. Uh, even if they had uh, grassroots support, very, very difficult to start a third party. So really hard to see where this ends. You know, we heard from Liz Cheney earlier talk about how the GOP needs to be focused on principle. And to that, she says it has to mean keeping the White House a Trump-free zone. I uh, will do uh, everything I can to ensure uh, that uh, the former president never again gets anywhere near the Oval Office. We have seen the danger uh, that he continues to provoke with his language. Uh, we have seen his lack of commitment and dedication to the Constitution. Uh, and I think it's very important that we make sure 
whomever we elect is somebody who will be faithful to the Constitution. Carla, she has not ruled out running for the nomination in 2024. What voters, what kind of voters might she appeal to? Well, you know, as a strong Republican woman, she has gotten a lot of praise um, from women in both in the Democratic Party and the GOP um, because the, the way uh, McCarthy and Trump have targeted her uh, as as somebody who has been a leader in the party. Um, you know, she's earned the praise of Democrats, including Nancy Pelosi. And certainly this is a woman who has the profile, the donor connections and the DNA um, to make it happen if she wants to uh, challenge Trump. But we got to say, uh, you know, as this goes forward, don't expect Democrats to keep up the praise of Liz Cheney if she makes that play. Uh, you yeah. know, Maureen Dowd was one who wrote a very, very tough column on her this week saying that, you know, Liz Cheney is one of the ones who helped create the foundation for Trump's big lie with her father, Dick Cheney, the former vice president. So, you know, she's going to get a lot of uh, criticism from the other side. But the fact is, right now, she is a, there are very few strong Republican women out there. Uh, she's in the lead leadership when it comes to that. And related to this, uh, Democrats and Republicans reached an agreement about an independent commission into the January 6th Capitol uh, riot. I understand uh, Kevin McCarthy, though, Jack, did not sign off. Uh, what's this about? Well, he claims uh, he wasn't fully informed before the uh, press release went out. Uh, I don't know whether that is completely accurate, uh, but uh, his problem is that he doesn't want a commission just about uh, the insurrection. He wants to talk about riots in Portland. He wants to talk about Antifa. One thing is for sure, whenever you hear a Republican politician talking about Antifa, is basically like shouting squirrel, uh, you know, <laughs> trying to divert attention uh, from, uh, from the main focus. Uh, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, by the way, uh, did a report uh, about domestic violent extremists. The big problem is white supremacists. Antifa didn't even make the cut on that report. Uh, so really, this is about a diversion, not about the merits of the issue. You know, growing up in Koreatown, I never saw squirrels. There were never any squirrels in Koreatown. <laughs> it wasn't until we, my family moved to the San Fernando Valley. You know, that's when I finally saw my first squirrel. That was in the 80s. Uh, it's State of Affairs on 89.3 KPCC with politicals Carla Marinucci and Jack Pitney, professor at Claremont McKenna College. All right, let's bring it back all, way back to California because Gavin, Gavin Newsom uh, released his revised state budget, although he's been uh, doing a slow drip on that all week. $267 billion, $40 billion more than the one he unveiled in January uh, paid out uh, over several years. The new stuff he put in today includes $11 billion for transportation, $7 billion for statewide broadband access. So I got to ask, is this a growth-fueling kind of budget or a budget to fix what's broken in the state, Carla? Well, I mean, Gavin Newsom, I just emerged uh, from Gavin Newsom's two-hour press conference on this budget. A, I mean, he's calling it a generational budget, a transformational budget, not a budget to play small ball. And, you know, I think he, he would say maybe it's a little bit of both. He's talking about paying off some of California's debt with this, but at the same time, uh, going after some of the most ambitious uh, projects and most important spending priorities uh, that finally California has the money uh, to do. And look, I mean, when you're talking about small business relief, uh, when you're talking about two out of every three Californians getting a Golden State stimulus check, that's the biggest tax rebate in American history, um, Gavin Newsom says, and things like renter assistance and 
creating opportunity for Californians who've lost their jobs and going after homelessness and mental health issues, putting billions of dollars toward that. Um, Newsom is really taking a victory lap. He did this week, as you noted, uh, but he's also saying this is big and bold. This is California all the way. So uh, we'll see. Republicans have come back on that and saying, look, a state with $76 billion surplus, it proves Californians are being overtaxed. Uh, but I asked Newsom that and he said, no, it proves we can spend right now on things we need to spend <laughs> yeah. on and give money back to people at the same time. Jack, what about you? What kind of a budget does it feel like to you? Uh, it feels like a recall budget. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, there's going to be back and forth on, uh, on how they should spend it. But this is exactly the kind of problem the politicians love to have. Uh, states awash in, uh, in revenue. And, uh, you know, whatever specifics the uh, governor and the legislature ultimately decide on, it'll be politically popular. And this is going to be very helpful to Newsom uh, if, when the recall takes place. Jack, I'm going to read you the uh, next question I had here on State of Affairs. The cynic in me has to ask what parts <laughs> or parts of the revised budget could be considered recall influence. So let me, with my pen, scratch that one off the list. <laughs> All right. Now, we, we know all of this needs to be hashed out by the legislature, though, perhaps uh, again in future years. So what's the likelihood uh, that this kind of money uh, is what will wind up sticking, Carla? Well, look, he's got a supermajority in both houses of the state legislature. You're going to hear from Republicans who say, uh, really? I mean, what, you know, taxes, taxes need to be cut in California for people at all income levels because they're, they have argued for a while that there's an exodus leaving California, some of the best and brightest and businesses too. Uh, Newsom doesn't buy that. He says that has been overplayed. We asked him about that. But the fact is there are things Republicans are going to be able to get behind, including small business grants, uh, including you know, the middle class getting in on that stimulus, um, get two out of three Californians getting some kind of check from from uh, the state. And, uh, you know, some of the other areas, uh, education fund, funding, et cetera. I mean, as Jack points out, these are things that are going to be popular with a lot of Californians and paying down the debt is something Republicans can't argue against. So uh, we'll see how it plays out. But right now, the governor looks like he's in the catbird seat in a lot of respects when it comes to this budget and the kind of uh, revenue that Cal is pouring into California right now. Jack, big, broad question here. I realize it is big and broad, but what would be the number one thing you think needs fixing in California that money like this could go toward actually fixing? Well, I'm not sure that the uh, it, it's something that is amenable to a budget response, but probably the number one problem in California is the high cost of housing. In 2020, for the first time in recorded history, California actually lost population, not just growing slower than other states, actual net loss in population. And uh, a major driver of that is housing costs. And uh, the governor does have proposals dealing with homelessness. That's great. But for people like first-time home buyers, people trying to uh, uh, move from a rental to uh, uh, buying a home, very, very difficult in this state. And uh, so if I, were, uh, if I were the governor, that would be the first thing I think about when I get up in the morning. That's Jack Pitney, Claremont McKenna College professor, also author of Un-American, the Fake Patriotism of Donald J. Trump, and Carla Marinucci, Politico's California Playbook senior writer. Carla, Jack, have a great weekend. Same to you, Eddie. Thanks. Thank you.
So I'm pretty sure you heard this week the CDC saying that uh, we pretty much could leave our masks at home or in the car or maybe in our pockets. I don't know if I want to do that quite yet. We're going to ask an expert uh, what he thinks we should do and take two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And its food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about L.A. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm e. Martinez. It's been a big week with regards to the coronavirus. Kids aged 12 to 15 are now eligible for the vaccine. And L.A. County's public health department said we could reach herd immunity by July. But there's still a whole lot of confusion about masks. Here to explain it all, we have Dr. Dean Blumberg, professor of medicine and chief of pediatric infectious diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Doctor, welcome back. Thank you. Good afternoon. All right. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention yesterday said that fully vaccinated people could go without masks in most indoor and outdoor settings. Now, L.A. County said it would uh, not follow that guidance just yet. The state has yet to weigh in. But to be clear, the CDC recommendation, uh, doctor, is just that, right? A recommendation. The agency is not in the position to make any rules. Exactly. And they and they they have explicitly stated on their website, you know, except where required by federal, state, local, tribal or territorial laws, rules or regulations. So so the local guidance, the state and the local guidance um, overrules that of the feds. And um, they're they're looking at that. The California Department of Public Health and other local public health agencies are, are looking at that guidance and adapting that to California. When you saw that announcement come across, doctor, what did you think? I I didn't cringe, but I did one of those clenched teeth emoji faces. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because we are in a good place. There's no question that we are in a good place in California in general in terms of transmission. There's low rates of transmission. We have relatively high rates of vaccination, and it's safer. Um, but the concern is the messaging that, like, it's over or something like that, that now that you don't have to wear a mask, like, everything's over, there's no concern, and we're back to normal. And that's certainly not the case. We've got several concerns. There are still people who are not vaccinated who aren't immune, who are vulnerable to severe disease. And we've got the wild card, which is, you know, the, the variants and, and concerns with those. So, you know, we're not out of the woods yet, but, but we're getting there. When we say, yeah, the whole concern is the messaging that it's over, when would the pandemic be over, in your opinion, doctor? Is it, is it, does it have to be over worldwide or just in the United States? What would be the, the bar for you? 
you know, I, I'm thinking that we can kind of say that it's over probably um, in a, a year or two. Um, you know, we, we have to get to a point where it's similar to influenza or other seasonal respiratory viruses, where there's enough immunity within communities that we're not having year-round transmission for what traditionally is a winter respiratory virus, and that people, that we do have routine vaccines, that we have answers to all the questions we have for the vaccines. How long do they last? Do we need boosters? When do we need boosters? Will they protect against the variants? Are there development of new variants? Are there going to be new yearly vaccines that keep up with them? So I think these are all the things that we need answers to. And at that time, we'll, it'll just be another virus that hopefully we'll be vaccinated against and then under control. Doctor, I've been very diligent the last year and a few months uh, with mask wearing. I, I just I just, I just, feel like I just needed to wear it. I probably will still wear a mask for a while, whether people like it or not, when they see me at the supermarket, I just, I, you know, I've been allergy free for a year. I haven't had the sniffles. I haven't dealt with the flu or anything like that. I just feel like I've been healthier wearing a mask. But okay, I, that's me and not everyone else. Um, what's your recommendation on whether to don a mask or not, uh, aside from state or county guidelines? Yeah, I think you have to do what's comfortable. So I, I feel the same way as you do. I mean, I remember the first time that I went to a restaurant and dined in person outdoors at a restaurant with friends. Um, we were all fully vaccinated. And yet it felt so awkward and weird <laughs> right? and yep. dangerous. And, you know, I mean, I almost felt like I was naked without a mask on. It just felt so awkward. So, you know, it's going to take some getting used to, to after we've been so hypervigilant over the last year plus to get used to the, the, the new reality that we're in. The other plus, Doctor, is that with the mask on, I don't have to paste on a fake smile when someone says, hi, how you doing? <laughs> I, I can just kind of move on and not have to even deal with uh, with social interaction. Now, okay. Yeah, that's true. You know, yeah. one of the things, though, that's been a challenge is trying to figure out what people's reactions are. And so, like, right. when I'm dealing, you know, every day in the hospital with other doctors and nurses and others, and I'm, like, looking them in the eye and trying to figure, <laughs> are they, like, taking me seriously? Are they smiling? <laughs> are they unhappy with what I'm saying? Like, I'm trying to figure that out. My normal face is dead eyes, but I try to do the friendly eyes when I'm wearing the mask, just to, mm -hmm. as, a, as a bit of an olive branch there. Now, um, doctor, as of yesterday, kids aged 12 to 15 started receiving the Pfizer vaccine. So from where you sit, how do you think it's gone so far? And do you sense a willingness by families to sign their kids up? I think it's been going to be very similar to um, adults in that there's going to be some parents who have been enthusiastically waiting development of the vaccine and the FDA approval for use in this age group and are going to rush to have their kids vaccinated. Kids have been so disruptive in terms of their social lives, in terms of playing with their friends, seeing other family members. Um, and so this really opens things up. Um, for them and makes families feel much more safe. And then there's going to be those parents who are going to be less um, enthusiastic and reluctant and say that we need more experience and, and aren't going to be the first in line to be vaccinated. And then we're, we're, we're hoping that as we gain more experience, that those parents are reassured and do get their children vaccinated. I've asked this question many times, uh, many different people, but something's probably bear repeating. Uh, what should anyone on the fence about vaccinating their kids know about the safety and efficacy of the shot? Yeah. <laughs> 
you know, these the, the, the two main concerns that I hear are that there's not enough experience with these vaccines and they were developed too rapidly. And one of the reasons that they were developed so rapidly, that they were able to be um, developed so rapidly, is that there were decades of prior scientific studies that demonstrated safety of these platforms. And then there was unprecedented multi-billion dollar commitment by the federal government and universities and manufacturers to develop these vaccines. So it has been rapid, but there's been no, there's been nothing skipped in terms of the development. And then if you take a look at the experience we've had with these vaccines so far, more than 260 million doses have been administered in the U.S. More than 1.3 billion doses of these vaccines have been administered worldwide. We have robust safety experience with these vaccines, and they've been proven safe and effective. Now, kids get a lot of different shots, uh, boosters at this age. And, and contrary to what we had heard earlier this month, the CDC updated its clinical guidance to say that COVID-19 uh, vaccine can be given on the same day as other routine vaccines instead of waiting 14 days before and after. Why the change? Yeah, you know, I've been waiting for that for a while because that co-administration issue just never made sense from the beginning. I think because there was no data with co-administration of other vaccines, um, the CDC initially said, just don't do it and, and have that interval. Um, but I think people are becoming much more comfortable that these are behaving exactly the same as other inactivated vaccines, non-life vaccines. So pretty much any routinely administered vaccine other than the MMR, the measles, mumps, rubella and the live nasal spray um, influenza vaccine. And we know that we've got so much experience with these inactivated vaccines, the non-live vaccines, that you can administer them um, in any combination and virtually any interval, and there's no interference. So I think that's why, is they just became more comfortable with that. We're talking to uh, Dr. Dean Blumberg, Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Uh, doctor, I understand you've been involved in a clinical trial for the Norovax vaccine for 12 the 15-year-olds. What can you tell us about uh, that and why it's being considered for vaccinating teens? Yeah, so the Novavax vaccine has been studied um, at UC Davis Medical Center um, in adults, and then they opened it up for children. So, um, so we're enrolling children now in that study. It's it, it might be, it, of course, we always want more vaccines available. So, so that's one reason that we want this vaccine available. And the other is that it is um, some people might be more comfortable with it because it is the more traditional protein-based vaccine instead of the mRNA or the adenovirus vector vaccine. And so this one might be one that might be more acceptable to some hesitant um, people. So we're enrolling children. We fully expect it to be safe and effective, but of course, it's not going to be recommended until we have that, that data. When it comes to vaccines for uh, that age group, generally, what's the dosage? It's, it's the same dose as being studied with the Nova vaccine for that age group compared to the older age group. And that was similar with the Pfizer-BioNTech that was recently approved for use by the FDA. It's the same dose. But that's one of the reasons that you need to do the study, yeah. because in some cases you need to give a, a smaller dose because the weight of the child is smaller. And in some cases you need to give a larger dose because their immune systems are more naive huh. and, and you need to give the larger dose to get an adequate response. So you actually have to do the studies to make sure you're given the appropriate dose. And where are we with the vaccine for kids under 12 years old? 
You know, there are studies that are underway for um, the Pfizer, the Moderna, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccines at younger ages. Um, it's the I know for the Pfizer vaccine is they anticipate having enough data to submit to the FDA for the um, emergency use authorization in September. Um, so maybe we'll get approval for use in younger children um, after that. And there's been a lot of worry about coronavirus variants, like the one uh, in India that uh, is apparently very contagious. So what have we learned, though, doctor, this week about how the vaccines are holding up to these virus mutations? Yeah, you know, we've had some uh, data that's been coming out from the CDC and from others that's comparing the different vaccines performances at some of the variants. And what we are learning is against the UK variant is all the vaccines appear to be effective and equally effective against that variant against uh, compared to previous strains. Um, it appears there might be some decrease in um, protection against the um, South African strain. Um, uh, but although we still do get protection. So instead of 90% protection, for example, there's 75% protection in, in one study, um, but there's still 100% protection against severe or critical disease. And so that's the good news. The Pfizer, uh, I'm sorry, the um, Brazilian variant, there's only one study that's looked at that. Um, it did show decreased protection, but it's, it's just one study. So we really need more information. And we really have very little information about the variant that's currently circulating in India. So we need more information on that. But overall, I would say that either there's equal or, or somewhat decreased protection with variants, but they do look like they will be at least somewhat effective. That's Dr. Dean Blumberg, Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Doctor, have a great weekend. Great. Thank you. All right, universal basic income. It looks like it's on its way to L.A. County. We're going to talk to the county supervisor, Holly Mitchell, who authored the plan. That's coming up when Take Two continues. Stay with us. The journalists of L.A.ist work for you. I'm Julia Paskin, your host for Weekend Edition on L.A.ist. It is my job to get you the news every Saturday and Sunday morning so you can start your day engaged and informed, even on the weekend. But this place is too big and interesting to stay home, so I'm here to motivate you to explore L.A. from the best hikes to the most interesting events. I'll bring you the stories and the people behind them. L.A.ist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. L.A.ist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com slash events. You can feel it. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. Ami Martinez. 
Los Angeles County is proposing an ambitious plan, give at least $1,000 to 1,000 families for three years. Supervisors Holly Mitchell and Sheila Kuehl are the two officials behind this universal basic income pilot, and the full board is expected to vote on it next week. It follows similar moves by the city of Los Angeles, Long Beach, Compton, and communities of South Los Angeles. Supervisor Mitchell is here now. She represents the 2nd District, which ranges from Culver City to Carson. Supervisor, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Now, so many cities in our area are already working on something like this. Why expand it to the whole county? I have the pleasure as the uh, supervisor for the second district of representing eight cities, but lots of unincorporated areas of the county. Areas who don't benefit from the work of those cities because basically the county is their um, local level of government. So this creates an opportunity for the residents in those communities to benefit from this kind of program as well. So to be clear, those unincorporated areas would not be able to pull this off on their own. Uh, no, if you don't live in the city of Compton, uh, Long Beach, or LA or West Hollywood, no, you would not benefit from the wonderful work the mayors of those cities are leading. You know, what we're putting together, what uh, Supervisor Kula and I have included in our motion that we hope that our colleagues will support us and vote uh, out of the board on Tuesday is the beginning of really developing that plan. You know, we've talked about a thousand residents at a thousand dollars and we've pulled that um, based on the research that we've looked at that came out of the great city of Stockton led by former mayor Michael Tubbs. And so, you know, the details will be fleshed out once um, the motion hopefully is passed to really figure out how we operationalize this really aspirational goal. Now, in your motion with Supervisor Kuehl, you two uh, make the point that government assistance should really be directed at the root of poverty and not just uh, some emergency band-aid. Can you elaborate on your thinking there and, and how this universal basic income proposal fits that aim? I think back to when my parents actually were social workers in the late 50s, early 60s, right here in L.A. County. And communities were spontaneously combusting based on historic unmet need. When you think about the Watts Rebellion here in 65 and all of the programs and reports that came out of that. And so here we are again, amplified by COVID, but certainly not caused by COVID, where we have far too many residents of the second district who are unhoused, who have housing instability, who live in food deserts. And so research has shown creating um, a basic income helps alleviate that. This is one way in which we be can begin to address the impact of years of systemic racism and other causes of multi-generational systemic poverty. The research out of the Stockton Project showed that people use the money for basic needs like getting an automobile fixed that allowed them to seek better employment, to perhaps quit that second or third job, which allowed them to spend more time home with their children, or were coming up on summer, creating an opportunity for families to invest in their children by placing them in enrichment and athletic and sports and summer activities that, again, will help um, their children in terms of their own academic pursuits. And so we've looked at the research. We see how low-income working families have used these dollars to improve the outcome of themselves and their children. We want the opportunity to afford that to L.A. County residents as well. Have you determined yet what the criteria will be for receiving this money if the motion passes? Um, we've begun that process again uh, in consultation with the, the, the national nonprofit organization that um, Mayor uh, Tubbs put together, where mayors all over this country are looking at pilots. And so we've got, you know, some basic ideas. We want to make sure, really, we, we want to make sure that there are groups of people who aren't left out. 
We're looking at women living um, below poverty who were released from you know, prisons and jails within the last few years. We're looking at transition age youth, former foster youth who are heads of households. We're considering domestic violence survivors who are heads of households. Those are categories of people we want to make sure that we shine a light on and certainly aren't excluded from our planning. Um, but I look forward to the opportunity to work collaboratively with my colleagues um, at the county level to really build what we think our program can and should be. We're talking to LA County Supervisor Holly Mitchell. The application process, Supervisor, what is that expected to look like? Uh, will it require paperwork or a lot of it? Can it be something that someone can do online or digitally? Uh, how do you expect uh, the application process to work? You're a couple steps ahead of us. Our, my first goal is to get the motion passed on Tuesday. But I will say this, you know, um, I've worked in and around policymaking and supported poverty alleviation programs, really my entire professional career, trying to make access to these programs as easy and efficient as possible. I certainly will bring that lens and perspective to how we roll out um, this program at the county level. If it passes, how will it be paid for? What pocket uh, of the counties are coming out of? Um, we're considering uh, a variety of sources of income. You know, the, the state will release their May revise today. The state is sitting on $76 billion in reserves. The county will receive um, uh, just under $2 billion in COVID-related support, uh, the second wave from the federal government. So we're going to look at a variety of funding sources that we think are appropriate for this kind of program. You know, as we discussed, a lot of cities are embracing universal basic income, not just here, but in places such as Tacoma, Washington, New Orleans. And today, Governor Newsom is expected to announce $35 million for these uh, guaranteed income pilots throughout the state. Uh, so, so, Supervisor, not a new idea, but wondering why you think it's getting so much attention and so much love now. I think it's um, sort of, if you will, the, the alignment of the stars. You know, I, I thank former Mayor Tubbs for having the vision to pilot it um, several years ago to to have a pilot project and do a full analysis and an evaluation that gives policymakers the data we need to really evaluate to determine if it's ready kind of for prime time, if you will, to expand beyond his pilot in Stockton. Secondly, I think the issue of poverty and poverty-related outcomes has really come to the surface for the broader community as a result of COVID. We know that COVID was not an equal opportunity offender. Um, there are communities that I represent in the second district that were disproportionately hit, um, communities that were already suffering from housing and food and access to health care insecurity. And so I think the timing is right in terms of having pulled back the blanket on how far too many people have been attempting to live and survive and raise their children in our very home, own home county of Los Angeles. One last thing, Supervisor. I know the board is expected to vote on this next week. What's your sense of whether it'll be approved? And if so, what would be the next steps? Good question. I don't ever want to get out, uh, you know, ahead of the process. I, I look forward to having a conversation Tuesday. I think the entire board is, you know, all of us are painfully aware of how the constituents we have the honor of representing have managed through this last really difficult year of a dual pandemic, public health and economic. And the county has stepped up in phenomenal ways um, to support small businesses, to support renters, to, to support small landlords in trying to navigate during these tumultuous times. And so I look forward to the conversation and hope my colleagues agree with this concept. That's LA County Supervisor Holly Mitchell representing the second district. Supervisor, thanks for coming back. Thank you.
sunny and in the 70s. That's pretty much what the weekend is going to be. So what to do with all the sunshine and free time? Well, you don't have to search or guess because the cool kids at KPCC and Elias have a list of the funnest stuff you can find. Hear all about it when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Democracy needs to be heard. This is Michelle Martin from NPR's Morning Edition. What does journalism have to do with democracy? The research shows that when trustworthy journalism thrives, so does civic participation. Reporters from LAist and NPR are here to keep your community engaged and informed. And that's why we need your support. By donating now, you're keeping journalism and democracy strong. Donate now at LAist.com slash give. And thank you. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. In most places you get your podcast, Sammy Martinez. Governor Gavin Newsom wants all four-year-olds in the state to have access to an early education program at their local elementary school. We talk often about the achievement gap. I have always countered it's not an achievement gap because that assumes people have been left behind. It's not that they're left behind always. It's so often, more often, that they start behind. Expanding transitional kindergarten was one proposal presented today in the May budget revision. And KPCC early childhood reporter Mariana Dale was listening. Mariana, let's start with a a primer here. The ABCs, if you will. What is transitional kindergarten? Transitional kindergarten is another grade of public school right now open to a select group of four-year-olds. We call it TK sometimes. The program started almost a decade ago in response to the state moving the age cutoff for kindergarten. What kids currently have access to that program? So it's only students who have their fifth birthday in between September and December of the current school year. The National Institute of Early Education Research says about 20% of California four-year-olds are currently enrolled in a transitional kindergarten program. Okay, so then what's it going to take then to open the program to every four-year-old in the state? Well, the price tag is $2.7 billion a year when it's fully implemented. And the goal is that TK would be expanded over the next three years until every four-year-old is eligible in the 2024 school year. And I say eligible, of course, because it's optional. Yeah. Now, what would be the impact here in Los Angeles? Well, in some ways, the L.A. Unified School District is ahead of the curve. Their school board voted last month to study how to provide universal early education. And where Newsom is proposing a minimum three-hour-a-day program, the district already offers a six-hour TK program. And on hundreds of school campuses, they have transitional kindergarten for younger students from lower-income families, foster youth, and dual-language learners. Mariana, why is this happening now? I think there's a couple of factors. One is the financial situation of the state is just totally different than it was last year. I looked up our LA story from May 2020, and the headline included the phrase devastating budget shortfall. <laughs> and and now the state is thinking it's going to have a $76 billion budget surplus. And the governor has been talking about early education since he was running for office, even before that, if you count his time as San Francisco's mayor. Yeah, that's been a thing with him for a while. Now, even uh, if they're not always affordable, there are many different types of childcare and preschool. So how does transitional kindergarten measure up in terms of quantity, quality, excuse me, quality? Mm-hmm. The National Institute of Early Education Research evaluates preschool programs across 
across the country. And right now, California's transitional kindergarten only meets three of the Institute's 10 quality standards. And what senior co-director Steve Barnett finds most troubling is the adult-to-child ratio. There can be up to 33 kids in a classroom, although most average around 20. Now, Newsom has proposed cutting those ratios to one child for every 12 kids, which if you've been around kids, seems a little more manageable. <laughs> and 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 Barnett, the researcher, said that he's excited about the proposal because TK gets more money per child than some of the other early ed programs. To me, that's the starting point. You pick the one that's best funded, and now let's build that into what it should be. Mariana, what are you uh, hearing in terms of response to the proposal? There's a kind of nervous excitement, I think, when it comes to any new funding for early childhood. We know that most brain development happens before kids start kindergarten, and those experiences early in life shape their academic success and really their whole life. But it's no secret that it's been hard to find affordable early education programs in the state for years, and the state is losing childcare slots. I listened into a Senate budget hearing yesterday, and one of the people that spoke was Donna Sneeringer. She's the chief strategy officer of the Child Care Resource Center in the San Fernando Valley. California is a large, diverse state. It is not a one-size-fits-all state. And I think the concerns many of us have with the transitional kindergarten proposal is it takes the parent choice out and gives them a one-size-fits-all approach. Although to be clear, though, this, this policy wouldn't require families to enroll in transitional kindergarten. Totally. Like, legally, you don't have to enroll your kid in TK or even kindergarten in California. But what some child care providers and advocates are concerned about is that if a bunch of families go to this free new preschool option, it's going to make it harder for other preschools or child care centers to stay in business. I spoke with Max Arias. He's the chair of the union that represents family child care providers. He says during the pandemic, they were the ones that stepped in when public schools and preschool programs closed. We need to remember that they are part of the early education infrastructure and they need to be considered in the same breath as we say transitional kindergarten, K-12, we should also say family child care providers. And in Los Angeles County, these providers are primarily women of color and they're earning on average less than 12 bucks an hour. The union's been negotiating with the state over their first contract. We didn't see anything related to this in the May revision, but Arias says their goal is that the final budget is going to have more funding for family child care providers. One more thing, Mariana. What else uh, should uh, people care who care about early education be paying attention to? Ah, more than one more thing. There's a few. Um, Newsom is calling for an additional 100,000 subsidized child care slots for children from low-income families. Then there's pandemic relief funding because we got to remember that California's lost at least 57,000 child care slots since last March due to permanent closures. The governor is proposing an additional $579 million relief package. And inside of that, there's going to be one-time stipends for providers and money for early childhood mental support. That's KPCC's Mariana Dale. Mariana, thanks a lot. You are welcome. And if folks listening have any questions about TK or early childhood, I'd love to hear them. Well, finally, the weekend is here. And if you're wondering what to do, we have some ideas for you. 
I'm KPCC's Itzi Quintanilla. Hey Martinez, now that I know that you love history, I have an event that I think you might be interested in attending. I do love history. All right, let's hear it. Well, if you're interested in learning more about Chicano rap, you can take a musical trip through nearly five decades of the genre from the 80s to today. Guiding you through the history will be Carlos Aguilar, a.k.a. Big Brown Dad. He's a former hip-hop artist previously known as Bookworm Brown, and now he's a multimedia writer and producer. The event is happening tonight on Zoom and Facebook Live at 7 p.m. I love that it starts in the 80s, Itzy, because that's when I was a lowercase a. I'm an I'm a uppercase a now, but that's when I was a lowercase a. All right, so Friday night, all a wrap. What about Saturday? Yeah, well, there's a few things happening. Starting this Saturday through June 30th, the L.A.-based theater company uh, Rogue Artist Ensemble has put together an outdoor interactive audio experience that takes listeners through stories of love, romance, and connection. Many of the contributors are from the LGBTQIA community, and it's taking place at Plummer Park in West Hollywood. Uh, there will be eight stops where people can listen to the stories, and all you need is your cell phone and a pair of headphones. Plus, there's apparently a secret phone line where your own love story can become part of the archive. Ooh. So yeah, that sounds kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and if you can't make it out to the park, though, there's also a safe-at-home version of the presentation. All right, what about uh, Sunday? It's anything I can do without uh, maybe having to leave my house? Yep, of course. We've got you covered. LitFest Pasadena is happening virtually this year on Saturday and Sunday. You can tune in to dozens of live streams all weekend long, covering genres from true crime to food and speculative fiction. One of the guests, Jervy Turvalon, actually contributed a Race in L.A. essay for Elliest, and uh, we aired the audio version of that essay on Take Two back in February. Um, if you want to learn more about this year's LitFest, folks can head to litfestpasadena.org. But that's not all, A. There's still a lot more events happening this weekend, and our friends here at Elliest and KPCC have compiled a whole list of ideas. You can check it out on Elliest.com. That's L-A-I-S-T.com. You know, when I asked my wife to marry me, Itzy, she threw up on me. Not kidding. What? Not kidding. I got down on one knee, she was sitting in the car, and she threw up oh on me. Oh, my God. Luckily, she said yes. It was too much to be. The invitation to marry me was too much to bear. That's our own Itzy Quintanilla. Itzy, thanks a lot. Thanks, A. And I got a story to tell because she threw up on me. So there you go. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take two is back Monday at two. Talk to you then. Marketplace is next. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.